Merry Christmas. Wow. Oz, behind the curtain. Merry Christmas. May the peace of God be with you and your families this Christmas season. Um, I have the, I got the long straw. I get to preach three services today. I'm so excited to make much of King Jesus and to remind you of the peace that we have with God and the peace of God that is possible um, in light of that. Um, a couple of things I want to I want to actually add on to what Josh said. When the kids come up, um, any kid that comes up here that is um, starting to shave, you're probably too old to come up on the on the platform. And then parents, when we hand out candles, I don't know what the age is, but if your a child is not um, uh, fireproof, uh, don't give them a a candle that you can light. So just really important stuff. Not really. Um, so today is Christmas Eve. And it's also the last Sunday of Advent. Um, historically, the church has celebrated Advent the, last, the, the four Sundays that precede Christmas Day. So today is the last Sunday of Advent. And so we are actually going to be finishing our Advent sermon series, um, He Shall Be Called. It's a four-week sermon series. It ends today on Christmas Eve. As many of you know, Advent means coming. For generations, God's covenant people have clung to his promise that he would bring a peacemaking Messiah. And I don't know if it's just, if it's just because I've soaked in what, it, what the Prince of Peace is all about this last couple of weeks, that I feel like every song that we sang today had to do with peace with God. And that's really what Christmas is about. It's, it's that Jesus came to bring peace with God. Today, this side of Christmas, of the first Christmas, we observe Advent as a reminder that we are still waiting for the, for the fulfillment of God's promise that Jesus will come again to bring a final and forever peace to the world that he created. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this about Advent. He said, the Advent season is a season of waiting, but our whole life is an Advent season. That is a season of waiting for the last advent, for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and I might add, will there be no more sin or suffering or death? And while we await Jesus' promised return, there's much in this world and in our own hearts that try to steal our peace. I think that's maybe the understatement of the year. Treasuring our preferences treasuring our perceived rights, treasuring our preferred timing while we wait for change is a recipe for conflict and a lack of peace if we don't have the right mindset and our eyes are not focused on in the right place. One of our sons um, and their family live in Kansas City, and uh, we visit there often. And we, they live right outside of Overland Park, and um, we often walk to um, OP, uh, downtown Overland Park, and there's a crosswalk. And um, I've, gotten to, I've, I've hit a lot of crosswalks in my time, and crosswalks are pretty simple. You, you walk up to the intersection, you see that there's traffic coming in both directions that could kill you if you walked out into it, and you see a red light on the other side of the traffic that says, it means don't walk. And so they give you a button to push, and then you push that button, and you wait for the light to turn green and the traffic to stop, and you walk across. Pretty simple. 
This particular crosswalk, and I've found that every crosswalk in Kansas City, uh, that when you hit the button, it has a voice. And it says, wait. Now, I don't like to be told what to do, really. I was tempted to ignore the signal and just walk across anyways. I didn't do that because it's against the law. And the next, I was tempted to hit the button again. And what do you think I heard? Wait. So when I hit the button over and over again, the sovereign crosswalk light doesn't heed to my will. So I want to tell you what it might look like when you try to force the will of God. It's in a kinder voice than this, but this is what it might sound like. 10, 9, wait, 8, wait, 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 harbor, walk sign is on. Is that irritating? You see, when, when, when I treasure my preferences, my perceived rights, and my timing, in the midst of waiting, I lose a sense of peace, and conflict wins the day. Frustration wins the day. When we treasure or trust in our preferences, our perceived rights, and our timing for the right president, for lower interest rates, a favorable diagnosis, or our next vacation, we will end up more conflicted and therefore less peaceful. The best definition of peace that I have been able to find is that peace is the removal of conflict. And conflict is the absence of peace. I recently read... Um, a commentator that said that that described the biblical reality of peace, and he broke it down into four parts. First of all, peace is freedom from conflict with God. Next, it's freedom from conflict with man and man, between man and man. That could be in your house, um, in this nation, nations against nations. Number three, it's freedom from conflict between man and nature, disease, catastrophe, Disaster, death, and then finally, it's freedom from conflict of our own hearts and our own minds. Conflict is a common thread that runs through the generations of human existence. We don't have to look too far. Murder, divorce, insurrections, national disasters, abortion, racism, disease, death, war, They're all part of the human existence. However, Christmas reminds us that peace with God is possible. And if we have peace with God, we can experience the peace of God, even in the midst of tough relationships and sickness and death and our own repeated mistakes. So let me ask you this morning. 
Are you experiencing the peace of God this Christmas season? I'm not asking you if your relationships are thriving or if your candidate is running or if your, your loved ones are healthy or if there's a ceasefire in Israel and Hamas. All good things. I'm not asking if you're set up for retirement or if your kids are thriving in school. What I'm asking, are you experiencing the peace of God in spite of all the brokenness in this world? So the question that begs to be answered in our short time this morning is what happened to peace on earth? And when and how will it be restored? And to answer this, we need to take a cue from Mary Poppins. We need to start at the very beginning. You know this verse, the very beginning of the Bible, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was, excuse me, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The eternal God of the universe is a God of order and a God of peace. In the beginning, God brought peace out of chaos. He then created humans to enjoy peace with him and peace in the midst of his beautiful and perfect creation. He created a world with perfect peace where there was no sickness, no suffering, and no death. So what happened to peace on earth? Where did all the conflict in us and outside of us come from? And how will it be removed? The reason that there's conflict in our relationships, conflict between nations, conflict within our own nation, and conflict in our own hearts and minds with guilt and anxiety and shame is because we have conflict with God. In the beginning, the first humans weren't satisfied within their relationship at peace with God and their surroundings. They wanted more. They wanted more power, more knowledge, more wisdom. They wanted their own way, and they chose conflict with God over peace with God. And their choice has had ripple effects throughout all of the generations. Humanity is no longer at peace with God. And as a result, our lives are oftentimes void of the peace of God. Even though we can see immense beauty in God's creation, and at some level we can experience peace in God's created order, all of creation is under God's curse. All conflict in this world remains until the conflict with God is removed. And in order to experience the peace of God, one needs to have peace with God. But here's the deal. There's many of us in this room, depending on the day and the hour, I'm one of them, that has peace with God, praise be to God, but I'm not experiencing and enjoying the peace of God. The last three Sundays, we've taken a look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And we have tapped the beautiful Advent truths in this section of Scripture. And specifically, we've looked at four names or descriptions that would characterize Jesus' ministry. That he was, he's, he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And the prophet Isaiah spoke these words to God's covenant people 2,700 years ago. 700 years before the birth of Jesus. 
He wrote to God's covenant people. He made a covenant promise to God's covenant people of divine blessing in exchange for their faithfulness. But he also gave them a warning that if they were unfaithful, he would judge them. In today's passage and really throughout the entirety of the Bible, we read sober warnings of impending judgment against God's own covenant-breaking people. Well, at the same time, we see God offering peace to these people. Sadly, in Isaiah chapter 9, when God's covenant people became tired of waiting for the fulfillment of God's promised peace, they took matters into their own hands. They kept hitting the button, trying to bend God's will to their will, God's timing to their timing. They took matters into their own hands, trusting in their own ways and and trusting in the promises of their leaders while forsaking wholehearted trust in the Lord. God's response to the unfaithfulness of humanity would be judgment. And in that particular time in Isaiah 9, the promised judgment would come at the hands of the Assyrian army that was rising in power to the east. Did I just say yeast? I meant east. You see, God is a holy and just God. He cannot just wink at sin. No matter how big your sin is or how small your sin is, your sin must be judged. All sin must be judged. And God's people in Isaiah 9 weren't willing to compromise. Excuse me, they were willing to compromise their faithfulness to their covenant, covenant God in order to find peace at any cost. And they were rightly judged. Listen to verses one and two, chapter nine. This is Isaiah's warning to God's covenant people who were unfaithful. But there will be no gloom for for who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephitali. But in the later time, he has made glorious way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. They were in anguish. God brought contempt upon them. They walked in darkness, and they were in a land of deep darkness. The land of Zebulon and Nephitali was on the northern border of Galilee, west of the Jordan River. And geographically, it was the front door of the nations. It was the open door. When when there was invasion, it would actually come through this very place. It was a very vulnerable place. And they were attacked um, in the land of Nebulon and Nephitali. Gloom, anguish, and darkness are appropriate metaphors to describe the horrors of enemy invasion and the consequence of rebellion against God. In short, God's people expected and thought they had a right to peace on earth on their terms. Treasuring peace on earth from the created rather than from our creator will always end up in misery. Make no mistake, a longing for peace is not wrong. We're hardwired, brothers and sisters, for peace. We're created to experience peace. But lasting Joy-producing peace is not found in treasuring the temporal, but in treasuring the eternal. Isaiah informs God's people that lasting, never-ending peace is possible, and it's coming. And God's final word for his people is never judgment. It's always peace. Peace with God that makes the peace of God possible. I want you to look again at verses 1 and 2 with a little bit different focus. 
but there will be no gloom for who was in anguish. He made glorious the way of the sea, this land where they came under attack. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. Peace is coming. However, it wouldn't come by power and it wouldn't come by compromise. The eternal covenant, covenant and promise-keeping God would provide a peace offering that would satisfy his own justice. And in verse 6, we see this, purse off, this peace offering would be a child, a son, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, given to us a gift of peace. The government shall be upon his shoulder. In other words, all blessing and honor and glory and might will be his forever. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. For his ways lead to life. Mighty God, for he will defeat his enemies. And his primary enemies are his, his primary enemy is our sin and Satan. He is the everlasting Father. He will love us endlessly. And he is the Prince of Peace. He will bring peace or reconciliation between God and man. Any man. What does it mean that this child would be called the Prince of Peace? A prince is the representative of the king. He carries out the affairs of the king. He would administer the requests of the king. And this child, who was prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born, this child would be sent to bring peace between a holy and just God and sinful and rebellious humanity. Joss read this at the beginning. Chase alluded to it. I didn't know either of those were happened, but I'm going to read it again. Seven year, 70, 700 years after Isaiah prophesied the coming of this child, there was a birth announcement in Luke chapter 2. It was announced to the shepherds in the field, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those whom he has pleased. Who is this baby who brought forth peace on earth? We know who it is. It's Jesus, the prince of peace, born in a lowly manger, who took on flesh and entered into our mess in order to bring peace to conflicted hearts in a chaotic world. Brothers and sisters, God had every right to reject us and judge us and not to bring peace. He would have been just to reject us and judge all of humanity and leave us in our darkness, in our gloom that we had chosen for ourselves. But he is a gracious God. He is a merciful God. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, even when we're unfaithful. Remember that Isaiah prophesied that the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephtali, the land beyond the Jordan, was the area where the conquering armies would enter? 
Josh brought that up in the first sermon. I think it is just mind-blowing. Every time I look at it, I get chills. That very area that we know is Galilee, that the, that the, uh, the, the, the army would come through to judge God's people, it's the, very, it's the exact same part of the world where we would first experience God's climactic act of peacemaking redemption as God began his public ministry, Jesus began his public ministry in that place. It's in that place where he proclaimed uh, that the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and be saved. That first Christmas brought us peace. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was born to die. Jesus came to bring peace between God and his unfaithful creation. He lived a perfect and sinless life, and his death on the cross satisfied God's wrath. All sin, all sin needs to be judged. All sin will be punished because every sin is a sin against a holy God. God doesn't wink at any sin. And we can never out-earn, we can never earn our way into God's graces. Jesus, the sinless one, took on our sin. He was born in a lowly manger. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He willingly went to the cross. And his death on the cross satisfied God's wrath. He who knew no sin, Jesus, the perfect one, became our sin that we might be the righteousness of Christ. No matter what your past looks like, you can find peace with God in trusting in his sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. The Apostle Paul described it this way in Colossians 1. For in him, Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. If you're here today and you have not experienced peace with God, you're doing everything you can to find peace in this life, but you have not yet found peace with God, I want to encourage you to talk to me, talk to one of the pastors, somebody that invited you, and um, don't walk away without examining yourself, confessing your sin, and trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will experience peace with God that is not dependent upon your tomorrow. It's dependent upon Christ's sacrifice yesterday. The final part of this short sermon, I'm going to speak to most of us in the room. Most of us who have experienced peace with God through faith in Jesus' sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. We've received peace with God, and we're invited to enjoy and to experience peace of God in spite of anything that's going on in your life or in this world. We can those who know the Prince of Peace can find lasting peace that is independent of our temporal circumstances. You see, the prosperity gospel would tell us that when you find peace with God, your circumstances, all your circumstances change. 
The last I looked, that we live in a world where there is a lack of peace everywhere. So even though we have peace with God, we don't necessarily uh, live in a world that has peace. But we can experience peace, the peace of God. And I want to I wanna give you a picture, an illustration that I pray that you would take with you. And it's uh, rather personal to me. And, um, and I want to share it with you to help you experience the peace of God, Christian. Um, even in the midst of a conflicted world. If you'd put that slide up there. This is my wall in my office. And for right now, I'm calling it the wall of fame and shame. And it's got some plaques of some different things that, some successes by God's grace. It's got some plaques that remind me of my many failures in God's providence. There's also three other pictures up there that remind me of God's providence in that, um, that this world is that uh, Jesus' words in, I think, John 14, where he says that in this world there will be trouble, but take heart or have peace because I've overcome the world. One of the pictures up there was from 1963, and it says the president was slain. J.F. Kennedy was killed. The next was when I was two years into a career as a financial consultant, that the stock market had its largest one-day decline in history. It was down 23.5% in one day. And the next one up there is the, a picture of 9-11, the day after 9-11 that says that uh, it simply says our nation saw evil. But I want you to focus on the picture in the top middle. We don't know what Jesus looked like, but I like to think that that's his countenance towards me and towards those who he came to bring peace and that he's sovereign over all of that and that we can find peace even in hard circumstances. Because Jesus is our wonderful counselor. His ways lead to life. He is our mighty God. He has and will finally one day defeat all of our enemies. Sin has been defeated, believer. It has no more power over you. You will never incur the penalty of your sin. Satan is on a leash, and one day he'll be put away forever. He's a mighty God. He's an everlasting Father who will love us endlessly, and his love for us does not depend upon our tomorrow and our behavior today. And he is a Prince of Peace. He has brought peace between God and man. So, brothers and sisters, um, it says in Isaiah, I meant to write this down. It says in Isaiah, it says in Hebrew, something similar, but that, that we find perfect peace when our eyes are stayed on him. Remember the peep, picture of Peter walking on the water? When he took a look, when he, when he focused on Jesus, he experienced peace. But when he started focusing on and feared the waves around him, he lost his peace.
So I want to, uh, we're going to transition, um, and uh, I want to invite the greeters to come forward, and I want to invite the worship team back up, and, um, and we're going to um, sing Oh Holy Night with amazing lyrics, and um, there, your kids should have a candle that you can crack in half. Um, these folks will come by and um, light your candle. And um, this is a reminder. We don't do this just because just it's tradition, even though it is a cool tradition. But it's a reminder that we still live in a world that is dark and that uh, Jesus came into the world to shine his light into the darkness of our heart and that we have peace with God and that we can experience the peace of God in a dark and decaying world because of the peace that we have with God.